Well, if you would, get, open up your Bibles this morning, get a Bible near you, and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I have to tell you that when we lived in Colorado, we didn't get very many storms like the one we had Wednesday night. I mean, I praise God there wasn't any hail. <laughs> That's all. But I watched that wall of dark roll in from my deck, like jaws coming in from the west and the north on Wednesday. And I actually took a video on my phone. I'm not going to share it with you, but I took a video on my phone for two minutes and 36 seconds. And there were hundreds and hundreds of lightning strikes across the sky in just two and a half minutes all over the place. There was a, almost a constant rumble, eventually escalating to a bit of a roar, sometimes closer, sometimes far away, but always there. I'm not describing anything maybe you guys don't know, but at first the air seems was still and stuffy. You just see light far away, some rumbles. And then you feel the first bits of rain start to intermittently fall. And it was a really short time between me grabbing my chair and heading inside and getting to a window that looked northward that the wind within that storm finally got to us and it ripped right through down the street across the rooftops, through the trees, and slammed into the house. And the rumbling was louder now. And to add to that, the wind was tossing the trees like those, like those air dancer balloon guys at the car lot. And the rain, I looked through a break in the trees, and I saw, with constant lighting, constant lightning as a backdrop, I saw sheet after sheet after sheet of rain going literally that fast. Now this is, <laughs> this is awe-inspiring. And the reason it's awe-inspiring is because I have zero control over it. I just watch. And the only reason I'm able to watch is because I can view it with a little bit more awe than fear because I'm in a sturdy house behind a relatively sturdy window. But if I were caught out in the open field, I wouldn't be looking around and wonder. I'd be flattening my body into the mud and trying to get the heck out of there. Welcome to the world we live in. See, it's not just physical storms that rip across the Great Plains. It seems like we barely have a chance to look up. And there's more noise of the devastating effects of sin. More wind, more storm of a world divided. More clamor of a demonic enemy seeking someone to devour. And in our own hearts... How often do you have perfect stillness when the storm of your, storms of your own life close around you like jaws? Well, we're here because there is a God. And he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Both in the created world where lightning bolts arc across the sky and in his voice which enters into the storm. His word, which we shall read today. Our questions, though, are these. When the storm comes, not if, when the storm comes, who is greater? Who will prevail? 
when the storm comes, is Jesus still the Christ, the Son of God? When the storm comes, is he greater? Will he prevail? And will we look to him? So with those questions in mind, would you stand with me as we read God's holy word this morning from the book of, from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 16. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You can have a seat. Who is greater, the storm or the Savior? Jesus is greater than the storm. See, our Lord has been with his disciples just prior to this with a crowd of about 15,000 people on a hillside in, in Galilee, and he has satisfied all of them with, out of five loaves and a couple of fish. And the crowds have wanted to take him by force and make, him their, make this amazing man their king. But Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to Capernaum, dismisses the crowds. He's not having any of this making him king business. And he goes farther into the hills to meet with God the Father alone. And as he's praying to his Father, which we, which we read from other gospel accounts of this, of this story, his disciples obey him and begin to head across the sea, many of them having known that sea their entire lives. They head out on the water, just another average trip, but then the weather turns bad on the sea, blasting against them. Why does this happen? Why are we told this, that this happens? Because Jesus is greater than the storm. First, God creates storms even for his followers. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. We need to know in an age where, to quote the song, the wrong seems off so strong, when crises are everywhere, when leaders fail and the public gets chaotic and even things seem to fall apart in our own homes and hearts, we need to remember that this world is not all that there is. There is a God and he is sovereign and he is the creator. When I say he's sovereign, that means he rules over all of it. It also means that nothing happens in everything that he has made apart from him whether good or evil. There's a true Jewish sentiment that we ought to keep. It says, coincidence is not a kosher word. God makes storms. And when the storm appears, it's under God's authority. He can take away the storm anytime he chooses. He can make the storm worse if he chooses. 
give you an example. Nebuchadnezzar, anybody familiar with that name from the Old Testament? The Babylon king who just destroyed Jerusalem and, and took captives into exile? Well, he was a self-worshipping king. And he was humbled by God. When he tried to take credit for all the amazing and magnificent things that God had granted him in his life. And in the book of Daniel, at the end of his seven-year humiliation, God sovereignly addressed Nebuchadnezzar and brought him to his senses. And Nebuchadnezzar confessed. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. Nebuchadnezzar said, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? See, when a storm arose on the Sea of Galilee that night. It was not an accident. And when spiritual storms, the storms of circumstance, drama, or hardship come into our life, God is not asleep at the wheel. But you might object at this point. You might say, well, sure, that's a great for a self-serving Babylonian pagan king, but the disciples, they were trying to obey Jesus. They were doing what Jesus told them to do. They weren't exalting themselves. They were being faithful. They were being obedient. Shouldn't it be smooth sailing when we're trusting Jesus and doing what he has told us to do? Is God angry with us when our lives as people who believe in his Son are going rough? The disciples may have thought God, that God was angry with them because in ancient days, people at least knew, unlike secular society today, they at least knew the reality that there was a power behind the storm. They may have totally gotten it wrong, saying it was Zeus or Thor. But when the storm came up, they knew something was up. And the disciples who believed God and were growing in their belief in his son they might have suspected that something was up. Well, is God angry with us if we're being faithful, if we're trusting his son and things go rough? If you profess, if you profess Christ and you are following him, experience alone should tell you that the lie of guaranteed smooth sailing should be spread out like a pile of manure out in the open field, not in your living room. But even more so, we have the continued confirmation of Scripture, the voice of God, that we are not exempted from the troubles in this life. John 16, verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. Acts 14, verse 22, the Apostle Paul and those who, with him traveling to cities after, right after, Paul had almost been stoned to death. They went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20-21, it says, 
He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In fact, compared to the troubles that the world may face, it may be harder for us. Christians are the most persecuted of all peoples on the planet today. Is it because God is angry with us? No. God creates storms even for his followers because he loves us. You see, John 16, verse 33, which I quoted just a minute ago, said, the world, in this world you will have tribulation, but the verse goes on and says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the way God loves us here is that he brings Jesus and shows us that Jesus is greater than the storm. The disciples are heading out onto the sea and they are making slow headway. This isn't a very large body of water comparatively. The evening turns to night and the night grows darker as the storm descends on them. And verse 17 says, Jesus had not yet come to them. This is a picture. This is a picture, church, of the most vulnerable place for the followers of God to be individually and as a church, where darkness surrounds us, the wind is howling in our ears, and we're tempted in that moment to believe that Jesus is not around. But the creator of the storm does not leave us to get through the storm ourselves. No, something even more wild than the storm is happening. Number two, the Lord will come into the storm with us. Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Well, without Jesus around, these guys who've been fishermen and lived on this lake, most, this sea, most of their lives, they do what they've, they've always done. They row when the wind is against them. And row. And row. Now, a boat like the one that they had and the experience they had, they could have made this journey in just a couple short hours if the lake were smooth and the way was visible. But the strong wind was against them, and their journey was getting into the wee hours of morning. They are running on grit to obey Jesus. But God doesn't care how much grit you have. (laughs) Jesus will tell his disciples later in this book, apart from me, you can do nothing. If God doesn't show up, their strength will fail. And they will go backwards. Or worse, The boat will get dashed by the waves and they will drown. And 
And it says a strong wind was blowing. You know, for us reading this, and we would hope, and perhaps Jesus' desire for them too, was the, 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 the reality that the strong wind was there was an indicator that God was going to show up. Do you recall how Israel, the nation of Israel, escaped the land of Egypt in the days of Moses and the Exodus? Read with me Exodus chapter 14, 21 through 22. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Tells us how. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a what? A strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left and then Psalm 77 verse 16 through 19 says when the waters saw you O God when the waters saw you they were afraid indeed the deep trembled the clouds poured out water the skies gave forth thunder your arrows flashed on every side the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind your lightnings lighted up the world the earth trembled and shook your way was through the sea your path through the great waters yet your footprints were unseen See, God was going to show up and God was working and they couldn't see it. In fact, it seems like they aren't even expecting it. The storm is upon them and all, they can seem, all it seems that they can think about is holding on long enough to beat the storm or to get to the other side. The rain comes down in sheets, the waves toss them up and down, the wind pummels them and howls in their ears. The water sprays on their faces and makes the grip on the oars more painful. You know what's interesting? This scripture does not say anything about them being afraid at this point. They're fishermen doing in storms what they've, they've kind of defaulted to, trying to row, trying to do it all by themselves. But compared to the storm, God coming on the water, that's going to be terrifying. Because it's when they see someone walking on the water, that's when they're afraid. When they had rowed about three or four miles, verse 19, they saw Jesus on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. <laughs> Why are they terrified? Shouldn't they be glad at this moment? What's their problem? What can be our problem when the storm comes and we're looking at the storm and not expecting God to show up? Well, I'll tell you what that is. It's bad theology. Or incomplete theology. Remember, theology is what we know and believe about God, his ways, and his works. Everybody is one, a theologian. And in, this, and in these disciples' theology, Jesus, their teacher, doesn't walk on water. Much less in a storm. He's supposed to meet them on the other side, not in the middle of the thrashing sea. 
walking on the top of the water. Moses went through it on dry ground. Jesus treats the water like it is solid ground. The other gospel accounts say that they think he's a ghost, a spirit. And because they don't believe yet, they are terrified. Do you know what this is? It's good news. This is good news for everyone who believes wrongly about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news for everyone who has been rowing, trying to obey God on their own strength. This is good news for you and I who might be terrified in the storm that God sends our way. This is good news for us who find Jesus showing up in the middle of the messes in our lives. The Lord will come into the storm with us, the one who made it and who is greater than it because of who he is. And number three, when he comes into the storm, Jesus, God, takes away fear and brings gladness. Verse 20, (laughs) they were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Do you hear the gospel in this story? Why does the power of God scare us? Well, partly because it is so powerful, but it also highlights how finite and sinful we are. See, in the Garden of Eden, God was not scary to Adam and Eve when they walked in the cool of the day with him. But when they sin, what did the the Scripture say they do? They hide themselves, trying to cover themselves up. Shame and fear. But did God stay away? Even when the consequences of sin led to the corruption and broken world we see around us today? No, his promise from before the foundation of the world, Scripture tells us, was always to be Emmanuel for God, his, for his people. Emmanuel meaning God with us. And here in this story, God in the flesh, Jesus He walks where no man can walk and enters the storm with us to rescue us. And this is a micro picture of what Jesus is ultimately going to do because he's going to enter a much bigger storm at the cross where the wrath of God is poured out upon him for your sins and my sins. And in that storm, he cries out, Father, Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He enters the storm with us and because he is God, he can rescue. See, apart from believing Jesus, we stand condemned. And our lives are no better than the choppy sea with the wind beating our faces. But if we believe 
we find in the storm a God who does not condemn, but who saves, takes away our sin and the penalty to us, and makes us, as John 1.12 says, beloved children of God. And as 1 John 3, I think verse 1 says, and that is what we are. And Jesus takes away fear and gladness in this way. It's the same way we believe. He gives us his voice. It is I. Now there's significant debate about how significant it is that Jesus uses it is I when he speaks to the disciples here. You could say it's, it's me. It's really me, guys. It's not someone you don't know. But Jesus uses this phrase multiple times in John's Gospel to show himself as the same God of Israel who delivered the people from their slavery in darkness into his marvelous light. And here on the sea, the, great I, the sea that the great I am made, in the darkness of the storm that the great I am brought, the light of the world comes and reveals his name once again to his people. The sheep hear his voice, Jesus says, of himself in John chapter 10, verse 3, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. That begs a question for us today. Whose voice are you listening to? Are you listening to the cacophony of voices in the storms that sweep through the world on this issue and that issue? Are you listening to your own voice, trusting in your own assessment of things? Or are you listening to the voice, the right voice, the voice that calls out in the storm and the only one that can actually deliver you? Before leading them out of this situation, though, Jesus reassures them that it is him. Faith comes by hearing. This is not a ghost. This is not a stranger. This is their Lord. This is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And God always reveals himself before he commands trust. Because who can trust who they do not know? It is I. Do not be afraid. Do you know what the most frequent command in all of Scripture is? It's that one. Do not be afraid. In the storms of this broken world, there is much to fear. In the messes of our lives, we're afraid of being known. We're afraid of being known lest people see the broken people that we truly are and reject us. But Jesus comes into the storm to take away fear. It is I. Do not be afraid. What's another way of saying this? Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, trust me. Believe me. Look not to the storm raging around you, nor to your self-protection by holding the oars tighter, nor to your poorly constructed idea of God, but look to me who is the true God and who has come to you to take away your fear and bring gladness.
the next verse says, verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat. When you recognize and see who Jesus is, really is greater than the storm, and believe him, you will be glad to take him into the boat too. Now, before he delivers, we must believe that it is better to remain in the middle of the storm even for the rest of our lives with Jesus, who is greater than the storm, than it is to be at ease without him. But God's promises are still greater. And we should praise him because it is he who comes in the storm for us not the other way around. And he comes to take away fear. And the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote this book, wrote in his letter, he said, perfect love, what? Casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. He loves, so he, he loves us, so he sends the storm. He loves us, so he comes into the storm with us. He loves us, so he calls to us and takes away our fear and makes us glad for him. But though he is enough, he loves us and makes sure we are delivered and get to where we ultimately need to go. Verse 21. Glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus' mission is not enough to be, is not to be enough for us in the storm, even though he is. His mission is not just that we would depend on him when the storm comes our way, though that's part of why he came. His mission is that anyone who believes in him would have life and life to the full. Again, to remind you, John wrote that he recorded this story so that, to use John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And praise God, life stuck in the storm is not what Jesus had in mind for them, nor for you and I who believe in him. One commentator I read this past week said, we cannot always know why God waits, but we can be sure that he knows everything and that he is ministering and caring for us and will never abandon us. You know, I've wondered a little bit about why Jesus waited until they were in the thick of the storm to show up. Have you ever wondered that? He could have stopped it. He could have been out on the water already. And maybe you've wondered that about your own life with Christ. When I believed him, why didn't I get to go to heaven right away? Why do I still face sin in my life? Why does it seem like he comes sometimes at the 11th hour, the very last millisecond? Isn't that stressful enough, God? <laughs> well, I think the Apostle Peter, one of the guys in this boat, said it well in his first letter to the church, 1 Peter verses one, chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. He says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that 
the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The storm may seem to drag on forever, but when we are delivered, not if, when, it will seem like such a short time compared to the beautiful, beautiful eternity that we are guaranteed with Christ in believing Him. He takes away fear and brings gladness because He is greater than the storm. And He's still greater than the storm today. This is 2,000 years ago, but it's still true today. And He will still show up in storms. I had a question. Anybody been to, the, to a Renaissance festival? Or Renaissance Fair? Okay, I have at least one nod. Thank you. I'm not... <laughs> I'm showing some of my colors here, people. Anyway, if you have ever been to one, the whole thing is a sort of a storm. All sorts of things to see and do. People in costumes, often walking around with weaponry and sometimes with alcoholic beverages that would at least get you questioned in other situations. Shops selling things that the majority of the world does not even think to put on their wish list. Anyway, I set that backdrop because I went there with a group of young adults a long time ago and we came across a shop where the employee had a shirt on with that Norse god Thor that I mentioned earlier, the god of the storm. The thunder god with a hammer makes an appearance in Marvel Comics and is in the Avengers. That guy. And on his shirt, it said this. My God carries a hammer. Your God was nailed to a cross. Any questions? Do you know what that's called? Well, it's called arrogance, but with what we're talking about today, that's called a storm storm that can keep people from hearing God and being destroyed by the trees that fall in the wind. And I could not say nothing when I saw his shirt as we began talking. I don't totally remember how the conversation goes, but I think it was something like this. I mentioned his shirt as we talked and I asked him, did your God actually save anyone? And if you read Norse mythology, Thor dies and never comes back again. He seemed a little troubled by this question. And he answered, no, not really. Thor being mythology. And I responded to him. Mine did. And I don't know if that man was ever saved Everyone who heard that conversation, I even texted a guy today. I said, do you remember that? He's like, oh yeah, I remember that. Everyone who heard that conversation, myself, the guy behind the counter, 
We knew that moment the storm got real, real quiet right when the power of Jesus showed up. Because Romans 1 verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. He's the creator of the storm. Sending them even to us who believe so that we can trust him and trust that he will show up in the storm with us and take away our fear and bring us gladness because he is greater than the storm. And he tells us to make this known.